You're listening to Pastor Ryan Couch at Calvary Chapel of Crook County as he teaches through the book of Judges. If you have your Bibles with you, let's join Pastor Ryan now. Judges chapter 9, we're going to look at uh, 9 through 12 tonight. And we're still on our goal of making it through the book of Judges in about six weeks, six studies. So we're, uh, we're just moving r- rather rapidly through this book and, and part of the reason for that is because it's fairly simple to understand. The, the whole concept here is not complicated at all. In fact, it's very familiar to us because we fall under this same pattern uh, so often that, that we find these characters and in, in the people of Israel falling into. And it, w- it would start with rebellion toward God. And, and then God would raise up an enemy nation to bring them into servitude. Too. And they would be under the, the, the hand of this nation, under the, the tyranny of this nation for however long that God chose. And, and then the people would cry out to the Lord. They would uh, pray to God and ask to be delivered. And God would raise up a judge and then he would deliver them. And, and then this cycle would start over again. And we see that uh, time and time again, not only in the life of the Israelites here in Judges, but Unfortunately, we see it in our own life that we're in this same pattern and and God wants us to break out of that pattern and God wants us to see that we don't have to give into this stuff any longer and that we have uh, Jesus who's already declared us to be holy. And when we begin to understand who we are in Christ, it changes everything. And, And so often, and I know I say this a lot and I beat this drum a lot, but so often... We are instructed in what we need to do for God. In fact, our Christian life is, is sometimes dominated by that. What you need to do for God, and, and you need to give, and you need to be at church, and you need to fellowship, and you need to read your Bible, and you need to pray, and, and it can become sort of this overwhelming burden. And it's not only that, but it's that you, uh, you know, not only what you need to do, but what you shouldn't do. And so you shouldn't do this, and you shouldn't do that, and you better not be doing this. And, and so we, we have all of these things that we know we have to do, and all of these other things that we know we shouldn't be doing. And man, it's no wonder that, that sometimes Christians are the most, you know, nasty, vile people. Because they're just living under this burden all of the time of, I've got to do everything just right. And we think that it, it's about us. And it's why often Christians become very judgmental. Because if you do have some semblance of victory in those areas, and you are reading your Bible, and you think you, you need to be doing that, and you are praying, and you are going to church, and you're not doing all this other stuff, boy, if, if you think you're earning favor with God, it becomes self-righteous, doesn't it? And those of us that struggle, what happens is you become discouraged and you want to quit. And that's why people just fall off all the time because they, they can't do it. And so they just think, you know what, rather than even go to church, I'm just going to bag it because I can't do this and I'm guilty. And I got drunk this week or I, I cussed my wife out or I kicked the dog or I, I've got so much lust and 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 so... I've heard people say that, you know, hey, I haven't seen you in a while. Oh, I won't come to church if I've been in sin. And so what happens is you're just carrying this burden around. And if we stop all of that and we understand that the price has already been paid 
And so all of the things that we, that we think we have to do, Jesus has already done everything. The, the price has been paid. All of the things that we're not supposed to do, Jesus has already endured every temptation and said no to every temptation, and he's covered all of our mistakes. Well, man, that seems like that's just giving people a license to do whatever they want. Not at all. When, when you truly understand who you are in Christ, then you want to read the Word because you have a relationship with Him. You want to pray. You want to go to church. You want to worship. You want to surrender your life. You don't want to do this other stuff because you don't want to disappoint the one who gave everything for you. You see, it's completely different in, how, in the motivation. And see, motivation is everything. And so if you're in that mindset right now where you're trying to earn God's favor, and you're going to be in this pattern that the Israelites found themselves in. And God wants us to break that, and He wants us to see that it's all about Jesus and what He's already done for us in the position that you already have in Christ. It is such a travesty that authors and speakers and pastors and evangelists have made it seem as if God is expecting some sort of work on your behalf to match up with the cross. And when the two come together, there's this beautiful harmony. God's not interested in harmony. It was a complete work of His own. 100% God-ordained grace. And now we enter into that, and it changes our life. It, It changes everything. But you've got to understand who you are in Christ. That he sees you as a finished product, justified, forgiven, cleansed, and sanctified. Sanctification is not something that we do, you guys. It's something that Jesus has done for us. And then the holiness that we work out is a byproduct of our understanding that we are already sanctified. We're already holy. And then we recognize that in God's economy, we're already glorified as well. Have you thought about that? That God the Father sees you as finished, glorified. See, you see yourself as messed up and sinful and wretched, but He sees you 100% holy and blameless. And when we understand that, it begins to have a radical impact on our daily living. And so Judges chapter 9. Then Abimelech, the son of Jerubbabel, went to Shechem to his mother's brothers, and spoke with them, and with all the family of the house of his mother's father, saying, Please speak in the hearing of all the men of Shechem, which is better for you, that all seventy of the sons of Jerubbabel reign over you, or that one reign over you. Remember that I am your own flesh and bone. And so this Abimelech is the son of Gideon. And he was the son of Gideon's concubine. And so he goes back to his mother's family, And he says, look, Gideon, my father, had 70 sons. And so, who who do you want to reign over you? Do you want all of us reigning over you and you never know who's in charge? Or do you want just one guy? And so this Abimelech, and his name actually means, my father is king. He goes against what Gideon had said earlier to the Israelites, which was, you don't need a king. God's going to reign over you. Remember we, we looked at that last week? Well, now Abimelech's saying, no, you do need a king, and I'm the man. I'm the guy for you. He wants power. He wants to be in charge. He wants to rule over the people. And so his mother's brother spoke all these words concerning him in the hearing of all the men of Shechem. And their heart was inclined to follow Abimelech, 
For they said, He is our brother. So they gave him 70 shekels of silver from the temple of Baal, with which Abimelech hired worthless and reckless men, and they followed him. And so they give him some startup money, 70 shekels of silver, which was a tremendous amount of money. And, and they're like, yeah, we want you to rule over us. And so what does Abimelech do? He hires some worthless and reckless men to follow him, some yes men, some guys that will just do whatever he says. Then he went to his father's house at Ophrah and killed his brothers, the 70 sons of Jerubbabel, on one stone. And so his first act as ruler, as king, as you know, whatever you want to call him, is to go and to kill all 69 of his brothers. So he just slaughters all these men. But Jotham, the youngest son of Jerubbabel, was left because he hid himself. So actually he killed 68 of his brothers. The 69th, Josh, Jotham, was left because he hid himself. And all the men of Shechem gathered together, all of Beth Milo, and they went and made Abimelech king beside the terebinth tree at the pillar that was in Shechem. This is interesting because if you go back to Joshua chapter 24, verse 26, you see that it was there at this tree there in Shechem that Joshua hid a copy of the law. And so here is Abimelech gathering together with, with all the men of Shechem at this same tree in complete disobedience to the law. And it's, I think, applicable in that Man, we can be around all sorts of godly things. We, we can come to church and hear the teaching of the word. We can listen on the radio. We can, you know, get CDs of services we miss. I mean, we can be taking in the word and yet be in complete opposition to the word. And that's, that's what we see here. They're, they're standing right over the top of the word and yet they're in complete opposition to it. The word has to penetrate our hearts it has to, to go down into our lives and produce fruit. And that's why Jesus tells the parable of the, of the sower and the seed. Each of those soils represents a condition of our heart. I don't think they represent four different kinds of people. I think they represent one person in four different ways that we assimilate the word. As believers as well. Because how often do we hear something and it falls by the wayside in our life? And the enemy snatches it and steals it and it doesn't produce fruit all the time. How often do we allow the things of the world to choke out God's word? All the time, right? How often does God's word spring up real quick and we, we're excited about something and oh man, this is amazing. And, and then it gets scorched. But what needs to happen in our heart is that we're soft to the word of God so that it can go down and produce fruit. That's what his word is, is intended to do. Verse 7, now when they told Jotham, he went and stood on top of Mount Gerizim and lifted his voice and cried out. And so he goes up to this mountain. Remember, this was the mountain where, where they, they cried out one on one side and, and another group on the other earlier. And they, they pronounced cursings and blessings. Well, this is Jotham going up on top of this mount that was right there in Shechem. It was about 800 feet. He uses this as his pulpit to speak forth a parable. The first parable in the Bible, actually. And he says, listen to me, you men of Shechem, that God may listen to you. The trees once went forth to anoint a king over them. And they said to the olive tree, reign over us. But the olive tree said to them, should I cease giving my oil, with which they honor God and men, and go to sway over trees? 
Then the trees said to the fig tree, You come and reign over us. But the fig tree said to them, Should I cease my sweetness and my good fruit and go to sway over trees? Then the trees said to the vine, You come and reign over us. But the vine said to them, Should I cease my new wine, which cheers both God and men, and go to sway over trees? Then all the trees said to the bramble, You come and reign over us. And the bramble said to the trees, If in truth you anoint me as king over you, then come and take shelter in my shade. But if not, let fire come out of the bramble and devour the cedars of Lebanon. And the parable here is is speaking of Abimelech appointing himself as their leader, as their ruler. And and the, the olive tree and the fig tree and the vine speak of what would have been good leadership in their life. Leadership that would have provided protection and and shade, if you will. Would have provided fruit and blessing. And yet they rejected all of that and they they went for the bramble. Which in Israel, the bramble is this this worthless plant. It, It grows along the ground and it's good for nothing. It doesn't produce fruit. It's too low to the ground to produce shade. The wood is useless because it... It just splinters, so you can't build anything out of it. The only thing it's good for is to burn. And so the parable is just basically saying, you chose a leader who put you under oppression and who was worthless in your life. And, and I think the, the picture here is that oftentimes we choose to allow things to rule over us and to lead us and to guide us that actually just destroy us they don't provide any fruit. There's no protection. There's no blessing. And it's Jesus that wants to, to be our shepherd. He said, my sheep know my voice. They hear my voice and they follow my voice. He's the one that we need to be having cover us. And, and the one that is ruling us. Jesus said, take my yoke upon you. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. See, all the other yokes of this world are difficult and burdensome and heavy. But Jesus' yoke is easy and it's light. And when we allow Him to be the ruler of our life, to be the shepherd of our soul, there's, there's just an amazing blessing in that. But when, when we don't and we have other things, this parable really comes to pass in our life. Now, therefore, if you have acted in truth and sincerity in making Abimelech king... And if you have dealt well with Jerubbabel and his house and have done to him as he deserves, for my father fought for you, risked his life and delivered you out of the hand of Midian. But you have risen up against my father's house this day and killed his 70 sons on one stone and made Abimelech, the son of his female servant, king over the men of Shechem because he is your brother. And so Jotham is just continuing to to plead with the people. If then you have acted in truth and sincerity with Jerubbabel, or Gideon, and with his house this day, then rejoice in Abimelech, and let him also rejoice in you. But if not, let fire come from Abimelech, and deliver or devour the men of Shechem and Beth Milo, and let fire come from the men of Shechem from Beth Milo, and devour Abimelech. And Jotham ran away and fled, and he went to Beer and dwelt there for fear of Abimelech his brother. And this this prophecy uh, comes to pass, as we're going to see. After Abimelech had reigned over Israel three years, God sent a spirit of ill will between Abimelech and the men of Shechem, 
and the men of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech. And so three years, things are going well, and, and now God sends this, this contention between them because he's against Abimelech. And so he wants to bring contention so that Abimelech is dealt with. And the men of Shechem deal treacherously with Abimelech, that the crime done to the seventy sons of Jerubbabel might be settled in their blood laid on Abimelech their brother who killed them, and on the men of Shechem who aided him in the killing of his brothers. And so our sin always comes back to, to reap consequences. Even if we think that it won't, it always does. And that's what we see here. His sin is coming back upon him. He's reaping the consequences for what he sowed. And we've seen that time and again in the Old Testament. That New Testament principle that what we sow, we shall reap. If you plant corn, you're going to reap corn. And if you plant and sow to your flesh, you will reap the consequences of your flesh. And that's what Abimelech did, and he's paying for that now. Now Gaul, the son of Ebed, came with his brothers and went over to Shechem. And the men of Shechem put their confidence in him. So they went out into the fields and gathered grapes from their vineyards and trod them and made merry. And they went into the house of their God and ate and drank and cursed Abimelech. Then Gaul, the son of Ebed, said, Who is Abimelech and who is Shechem that we should serve him? Is he not the son of Jerubbabel? And is not Zabel his officer? Serve the men of Hamor, the father of Shechem. But why should we serve him? If only this people were under my authority, then I would remove Abimelech. So he said to Abimelech, Increase your army and come out. When Zebul, the ruler of the city, heard the words of Gaul, the son of Ebed, his anger was aroused. And he sent messengers to Abimelech, secretly saying, Take note, Gaul, the son of Ebed, and his brothers have come to Shechem, and here they are fortifying the city against you. And so they're, they're coming against Abimelech. The words of his brother Jotham are coming to pass. Now therefore, get up by night, you and the people who are with you, and lie in wait in the field. And it shall be as soon as the sun is up in the morning that you shall rise early and rush upon the city. And when he and the people who are with him come out against you, you may then do to them as you find opportunity. And so they're making a plan, getting the people to come against Abimelech and his faithful followers. So Abimelech and all the people who were with him rose by night and lay in wait against Shechem in four companies. When Gaul, the son of Ebed, went out and stood in the entrance to the city gate, Abimelech and the people who were with him rose from lying in wait. And when Gaul saw the people, he said to Zabel, Look, people are coming down from the tops of the mountains. But Zabel said to him, you see the shadows of the mountains as if they were men. So Gaul spoke again and said, See, people are coming down from the center of the land, and another company is coming from the diviner's terebinth tree. Then Zabel said to him, Where indeed is your mouth now, with which you said, Who is Abimelech, that we should serve him? Are not these the people whom you despised? Go out, if you will, and fight with them now. So Gal went out, leading the men of Shechem, and fought with Abimelech. And Abimelech chased him, and he fled from him, and many fell wounded to the very entrance of the gate. Then Abimelech dwelt at Ariuma, and Zabel drove out Gaul and his brothers, so that they would not dwell in Shechem. And it came about on the next day that the people went out into the field, and they told Abimelech. So he took his people, divided them into three companies, and lay in wait in the field. And he looked, 
And there were the people coming out of the city, and he rose against them and attacked them. Then Abimelech and the company that was with him rushed forward and stood at the entrance of the gate of the city. And the other two companies rushed upon all who were in the fields and killed them. So Abimelech fought against the city all that day. He took the city and killed the people who were in it. And he demolished the city and sowed it with salt. So this guy is just a violent, tyrannical leader who is putting people under his oppression. Now when all the men of the tower of Shechem had heard that, they entered the stronghold of the temple of the god Bareth. And it was told Abimelech that all the men of the tower of Shechem were gathered together. Then Abimelech went up to Mount Zaman, he and all the people who were with him. And Abimelech took an axe in his hand and cut down a bow from the trees and took it and laid it on his shoulder. Then he said to the people who were with him, What you have seen me do, make haste and do as I have done. So each of the people likewise cut down his own bow, not bow, bow, and followed Abimelech, put them against the stronghold, and set the stronghold on fire above them, so that all the people of the tower of Shechem died, about a thousand men and women. Then Abimelech went to Thebes, and he encamped against Thebes and took it. But there was a strong tower in the city, and all the men and the women, all the people of the city fled there and shut themselves in. Then they went up to the top of the tower. So Abimelech came as far as the tower and fought against it, and he drew near the tower, the door of the tower, to burn it with fire. But a certain woman dropped an upper millstone on Abimelech's head and crushed his skull. This would have been the, the little, they, they had the giant millstone that you couldn't possibly lift and throw out of a window that weighed, you know, like a ton. But th- this would have been the, the little handheld uh, stone that was used to crush grain by hand. And it was called an upper millstone. And she probably weighed about five to ten pounds. So she takes this, throws it out the window. You know, the velocity of, you know, it'd be like a bowling ball. So it wouldn't, you know, if it hit you in the head, that's not, not a good deal. So it hits Abimelech in the head, crushes his skull. So prideful as he was, even in his death, he called quickly to the young men, to his young man, his armor bearer, and said to him, draw your sword and kill me, lest men say of me a woman killed me. So his young man thrust him through and he died. So in order that he didn't have to have the legacy of being killed by a woman, he he said, you know, just run me through with a sword. And when the men of Israel saw that Abimelech was dead, they departed every man to his place. It's like, you know, business as usual. You know, everybody's just back doing their thing. They're like, okay, he's dead, good, let's go back to life. Thus God repaid the wickedness of Abimelech, which he had done to his father by killing his 70 brothers. And all the evil of the men of Shechem, God returned on their own heads. And on them came the curse of Jotham, the son of Jerubbabel. And so this, this curse, this prophecy of Jotham came to pass. His sin did find him out. What he sowed, he reaped. And the, the people longed for a leader and a ruler, and they got what they longed for, which was a, a man who put them under tyranny and bondage instead of of God who wanted to lead them into blessings. And it's been said that that no one's life is a waste, that no one's life is fails to be an example because some people's lives are so terrible and so wretched that they they stand as an example of how not to live. And that's exactly what we see with Abimelech. His life was a was a waste 
It was filled with violence and pride and opposition to God. And yet we can look at his life and we can say, that's not how I want to live my life. It's not what I want to be about. And when I die, I don't want people to just go back to their business. You know what I mean? I want to leave a legacy behind where people say, man, she was an amazing woman of God. He was an amazing man of God. And I want people to, in a sense, miss me. I don't want people to say, gosh, I'm glad he's gone, which is exactly what happened with with Abimelech. And so in chapter 10, we see a couple uh, what are called minor judges, Tola and Jair. After Abimelech, there rose to save Israel, Tola, the son of Pua, the son of Dodo, a man of Ishakar, and he dwelled in Shamir in the mountains of Ephraim. He judged Israel 23 years, and he died and was buried in Shamir. And so not a lot said about Tola. He, he reigned for 23 years as judge of Israel. After him arose Jair, a Gileadite, and he judged Israel 22 years. Now he had 30 sons. So, you know, some of these judges, I mean, they, they, got, they got around a little bit. Gideon had 70. This guy had 30. You know, you're not going to have 30 sons with one wife. So these guys had uh, plenty, of, plenty of ladies. Now he had 30 sons who rode on 30 donkeys. And so, I mean, they're living large, you know. He, he's, he's living like a king, even though they, they weren't to, to be doing that. And, and you can imagine, you know, that if it was in today's context, he, you know, this would be 30 sons who are driving, you know, 30 escalades, and they, they are dwelling and ruling over 30 towns. And so each of these kids had their own town. Talk about being spoiled. You know, I remember when I was a kid, if a kid had a TV in his room, you know, you Parents would be like, man, they're spoiling their kid. These kids had their own towns. They owned a, a, an entire city. And J.R. died and was buried in Canaan. So that's the end of that guy. Then the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtoreths. And these were the, the common gods in that time, the, the false gods, the, the main gods. Baal was, was the god of, of the weather. He controlled uh, the crops and the the produce of the land, and so he was very important. If they had a a bad year agriculturally, they would cry out to Baal. If if they had a a storm and their crops were wiped out, they would offer sacrifices. Ashtoreth was the goddess of fertility. She would be worshipped in in sexual uh, deviance. Uh, there, there were prostitutes in which you could worship the Ashtoreths with. And so the, the god of power, really, Baal, and, and the god of sex. And, and the children of Israel were serving them, not because they were attracted to the little idols, but they were attracted to, to what came along with them, the power, the, the prosperity, the abundance of crops, the sex, and the... That lifestyle, they were attracted to that. It's the same things that people are attracted to today. And why people will, will serve these things rather than the one and true living God. Because it appeals to our flesh. And not only was it the Baals and the Ashtoreths, but the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the people of Ammon, the gods of the Philistines. So they're serving every god of every people they possibly can. And they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. So the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. And so here's this cycle again. They've been doing 
okay, Abimelech was leading them, and, and, and that was kind of a, a period of violence and, and tyranny from their, their own ruler, but it seemed that during that time they were obeying the Lord, and then Toa and Jair, and now they can't go along without falling back into this cycle once again, and they begin to serve the gods, they begin to, to lust after power and sex and, and everything else, and so God's anger is hot against them. And he, he sold them into the hand of the Philistines and into the hands of the people of Ammon. The Ammonites were descendants of, uh, of Lot. You remember when he, when he had that, um, the relations with his, his daughter and, and, and the Moabites and the Ammonites uh, came out of that. And from that year they harassed and oppressed the children of Israel for 18 years. All the children of Israel who were on the other side of the Jordan in the land of the Amorites in Gilead. Moreover, the people of Ammon crossed over the Jordan to fight against Judah, also against Benjamin, and against the house of Ephraim, so that Israel was severely distressed. And so the Philistines and the Ammonites are coming against them, and the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. Here it is again. They're crying out to God. Lord, deliver us. We've sinned against you, because we have both forsaken our God and served the Baals. So the Lord said to the children of Israel, Did I not deliver you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites and from the people of Ammon and from the Philistines, also the Sidonians and the Amalekites and the Moanites? They oppressed you and you cried out to me and I delivered you from their hand. So God goes all the way back to his deliverance in Egypt and all these other indigenous people that he had delivered them from. And yet... You have forsaken me and served the other gods. Therefore, I will deliver you no more. Go and cry out to the gods which you have chosen. Let them deliver you in your time of distress. And so God is just saying, look, you've been serving these other gods. You've been worshiping them. See what they can do for you. He's giving them over to their gods. And that's a sad place. When, when the Lord just kind of gives us over to, to the things that we want to serve. Okay, if you want to serve that, then, then let's see what this, this God will do for you. If you want to serve money, then let's see what happens when you lose all of it. If you want to serve sex, then, then let's see what happens when, when the repercussions of that come into your life. If you want to serve power, let's see what happens when nobody wants you to lead them anymore. If you want to serve success, and let's see what happens when you fail. And he just, he gives them over to it. And the children of Israel said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems best to you. Only deliver us this day, we pray. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. And his soul could no longer endure the misery of Israel. And so initially, they, they hadn't come to a place of, of true repentance. And, and then they... They finally come to that place where they, they put away their gods and they, they bow down to the Lord. And, and God in his mercy and in his compassion could not endure the misery of Israel any longer. Romans chapter 2 tells us it, it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. He's so kind. He's so gentle. God doesn't want to judge us. He doesn't want to condemn us. He doesn't want to chastise us, but he has to, to bring us to that place where we're ready to give up all of the gods that we're serving, but he's a God of compassion. 
Then the people of Ammon gathered together and encamped in Gilead, and the children of Israel assembled together and encamped in Mizpah. And the people, the leaders of Gilead, said to one another, Who is the man who will begin the fight against the people of Ammon? He shall be head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Now Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty man of valor, but he was the son of a harlot, and Gilead begot Jephthah. And so Gilead has a son by a harlot named Jephthah, and this is going to be the, the new judge of Israel. And Gilead's wife bore sons, and when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, You shall have no inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. And so because he was the son of a harlot, they just shoved him out and they said, We're, we're not going to even recognize you as the son of our father. Then Jephthah fled from his brothers and dwelt in the land of Tob. And worthless men banded together with Jephthah and went out raiding with him. And it came to pass after a time that the people of Ammon made war against Israel. And so it was when the people of Ammon made war against Israel that the elders of Gilead went to get Jephthah from the land of Tob. Then they said to Jephthah, Come and be our commander that we may fight against the people of Ammon. And so these people that God had raised up, the Ammonites, are now coming against Israel, but God had already raised up this judge because they cried out to the Lord for a deliverer. And so God's preparing the judge even before the, the oppression. So Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, Did you not hate me and expel me from my father's house? Why have you come to me now when you are in distress? And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, That is why we have turned again to you now, that you may go with us and fight against the people of Ammon and be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. So the Gileadites had heard that their brother that they cast out is a stud, he's a warrior, and they, they want him to, to be their commander. So Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, If you take me back home to fight against the people of Ammon, and the Lord delivers them to me, shall I be your head? And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, The Lord will be a witness between us if we do not do according to your words. Then Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and commander over them. And Jephthah spoke all his words before the Lord in Mizpah. Now Jephthah sent messengers to the king of the people of Ammon, saying, What do you have against me that you have come to fight against me in my land? And the king of the people of Ammon answered the messengers of Jephthah, Because Israel took away my land when they came up out of Egypt from the Arnon as far as the Jabbok into the Jordan. Now therefore restore those lands peaceably. So Jephthah again sent messengers to the king of the people of Ammon and said to him, Thus says Jephthah, Israel did not take away the land of Moab, nor the land of the people of Ammon. For when Israel came up from Egypt, they walked through the wilderness as far as the Red Sea and came to Kadesh. And it goes on in, in chapter uh, 11, some, some dialogue here between uh, Jephthah and the Ammonites and, and some just prophecy of what is going to take place. And then we see Jephthah defeating the Ammonites there in, in chapter, or verse 29. It says, The Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah, and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh, and passed through Mizpah of Gilead. And from Mizpah of Gilead, he advanced toward the people of Ammon. And so he, he's now going to defeat them. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will indeed deliver the people of Ammon into my hands, 
Then it will be that whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the people of Ammon shall surely be the Lord's, and I will offer it up as a burnt offering. Now, I don't really know what he expected to come out of his house. We're going to see that it wasn't what he expected. I don't know if he thought it was going to be like a cow or goats or I don't know what was living in his house, but it it just seems to be a really weird vow. Um, Maybe in that culture, maybe they had the cattle and everything living in the house. I have no idea. But I don't know what he expected to come out of the house. I mean, even if it was his pet, I don't know why he would make this vow. It's just really weird. But he basically said to the Lord, Look, if you'll deliver the Ammonites, which God already told them that, that he would, right? The only reason these people are lifted up against them is because of their rebellion. Otherwise, these people were like soft butter in their hands. He'd already given all of the land to them. So this vow is really unnecessary. And it's rash and impetuous, and it's just stupid, as we're going to see. So Jephthah advanced toward the people of Ammon to fight against them, and the Lord delivered them into his hands. And he defeated them from Aor as far as Mineth, 20 cities into Abel, Karamim, with a very great slaughter. Thus the people of Ammon were subdued before the children of Israel. So, all right, awesome, the Lord delivered them. So now... He's making his way to his house at Mizpah, and there was his daughter coming out to meet him with timbrels and dancing, and she was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. So the first thing out of his house is his daughter. Again, I don't know what he expected to come out of his house. And so it dawns on him, man, I made this vow. The first thing out of my house, I'm given to the Lord. And so when it came to pass, and he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low. You are among those who trouble me. For I have given my word to the Lord, and I cannot go back on it. It's like, it's not really her fault. I don't know why she's troubling you. Again, this was a foolish vow. So she said to him, My father, if you have given your word to the Lord, do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth, because the Lord has avenged you of your enemies, the people of Ammon. And so she wants him to keep his word, and she wants him to keep his vow to the Lord. Then she said to her father, Let this thing be done for me. Let me alone for two months that I may go and wander on the mountains and bewail my virginity, my friends and I. So he said, go. And he sent her away for two months and she went with her friends and bewailed her virginity on the mountains. And it was so at the end of two months that she returned to her father and he carried out his vow with her with which he had vowed. She knew no man. And it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went four days each year to lament the daughter of Jephthah, the Gileadite. Now, there's two schools of thought on this. There are some that believe that Jephthah let his daughter go for a couple months and, you know, hang out and party hardy or whatever because when she got back, he slaughtered her and offered her to the Lord because that was his vow that whatever came out of his house, he would offer to the Lord as a burnt offering, in fact, he says um, in verse 31. I will offer it up as a burnt offering. So some people take it super literally and they believe that Jephthah offered his daughter as a burnt offering. Now the only problem with that is that the law strictly prohibits human sacrifice. And so Jephthah would be going against the law in in carrying out this vow. And I don't think the Lord ever tells us to sin in order to fulfill a vow. You know, it it would be kind of like, Well, Lord, I gave her my word that I was going to marry her. I know she's not a believer, but I gave her my word. Well, you have two 
wrong things here. You gave somebody your word and you shouldn't have done that. But what's worse? Going against the word of God that says that you shouldn't be unequally yoked. And so that's what I see happening here. And I think Jephthah, who is mentioned in Hebrews 11 as a man of faith, he's a man that knew God. I think Jephthah would have sought the Lord and said, look, this is the lesser of two evils here. And yes, I need to honor my vow to the Lord, but I'm not going to honor it in totality to the literal extent of it because that would mean human sacrifice. I'm not going to do that. I don't think Jephthah did that. Now, there are those that do. What I think he did was that he gave his daughter to the temple to serve in the temple and that she would be a virgin for the rest of her life. And, and there were uh, people that did that. They were women of the temple. They, they attended to the needs. They, they served the priests. They, they would take care of um, the, the temple, basically. They were servants there. Now, most of the time, and, th- and this wouldn't be the temple, this would be the tabernacle, but same, same kind of idea. And most of the time, those women were widows, and they would just serve out their, the rest of their life. Remember, um, man, I can't think of her name, but in the book of Luke, we see that woman who, who so desperately wanted to meet Jesus, this, the Messiah, and she, she had been a, um, a widow since... At a very young age, she married young, and then her husband died, and she just remained a widow there in the temple. And, and that's kind of what uh, is happening, I think, here with Jephthah's daughter. She just remained a widow for the rest of her, or a, a virgin serving in the temple for the rest of her life. And it, it seems to, to kind of point to that as it says she bewailed her virginity. She knew no man, verse 39. The daughters of Israel lament each year for, for this woman by, you know, waiting an extra amount of time or whatever it was before they would be married. And so, chapter 12, Then the men of Ephraim gathered together, crossed over toward Zaphon, and said to Jephthah, Why did you cross over to fight against the people of Ammon and did not call us to go with you? We will burn your house down on you with fire. These people didn't, like, beat around the bush. And Jephthah said to them, My people and I were in a great struggle with the people of Ammon. And when I called you, you did not deliver me out of their hands. And so the Ephraimites are just ticked because now the battle's over and they didn't get to be part of the glory and to get the credit. And so Jephthah said, look, you knew what was going on. You knew there was a struggle. Why didn't you come and help? You could have been a part of it. So when I saw that you would not deliver me, I took my life in my hands and crossed over against the people of Ammon, and the Lord delivered them into my hand. Why then have you come up to me this day to fight against me? And there are people that don't really want to serve. They don't really want to step out, but they do want the credit. They do want the glory. And so it's like, you know, they, they'll come in when the credit's being handed out, and, and they want to be a part of that. Now Jephthah gathered together all the men of Gilead and fought against Ephraim. And the men of Gilead defeated Ephraim because they said, You Gileadites are fugitives of Ephraim among the Ephraimites and among the Manassites. The Gileadites seized the fords of the Jordan before the Ephraimites arrived. And when any Ephraimite who escaped said, Let me cross over, the men of Gilead would say to him, Are you an Ephraimite? If he said no, then they would say to him, Then say, Shibboleth. And he would say, Sibboleth, for he could not pronounce it right. 
Then they would take him and kill him at the fords of the Jordan. There fell at that time 42,000 Ephraimites, and Jephthah judged Israel year, six years. Then Jephthah the Gileadite died and was buried in among the cities of Gilead. And so they're at war with the Ephraimites, and the Ephraimites, you know, you couldn't tell them apart. They're, they're all uh, Israelites. They're all sons of Jacob. And the, the Ephraimites would try to avoid death and try to avoid being uh, killed, they would say, let me cross over, let me go through, and they would give them this test, say Shibboleth, and they would say it as Sibboleth because their, their dialect would, would not be able to pronounce it properly. Verse 8, after him, Isban of Bethlehem judged Israel. He had 30 sons, and he gave away 30 daughters in marriage and brought in 30 daughters from elsewhere for his sons. He judged Israel seven years. Then Isban died and was buried at Bethlehem. After him, Elon the Zebulonite judged Israel. He judged Israel ten years. And Elon the Zebulonite died and was buried at Ajalon in the country of Zebulun. After him, Abdon the son of Hillel the Pyrethonite judged Israel. He had forty sons and thirty grandsons who rode on seventy young donkeys. He judged Israel eight years. Then Abdon the son of Hillel the Pyrethonite died and was buried in Pyrathon in the land of Ephraim in the mountains of the Amalekites. And so, appreciate you guys bearing with it. A lot of reading as we're making our way through here. But let's stand and pray together. Father, we thank you again for this time in your word tonight, Lord, for the, the application that's here for us. God, whatever it is that you spoke to us tonight, God, whatever it is that, that you wanted us to, to glean, Jesus, I know that that the overarching theme here is, is really trading in serving you for serving other gods. Trading in allowing you to be the ruler of our life, to be the, the, the king of our life, and putting other things in that place. Lord, even as we're studying on Sundays, the, the preeminence of Christ. And Jesus, I pray that, that tonight you would be preeminent. That, Jesus, you would be the center of our life, that we wouldn't be serving other gods, that, that no other god would be lifted up in our life. And that, Lord, right now, if we're, we're facing the consequence of our own sin and our own stupidity, Lord, that we would just repent, that we would turn to you, that we would recognize the power of the gospel, that, Lord, we would recognize, as we talked about at the very beginning tonight, that we are already holy in your sight. And, Jesus, I pray that that realization, that that truth would radically change our life and how we live. Lord, fill us with your Holy Spirit. God, as we finish out the rest of this week, God, may we bring glory to you in whatever we do and in whatever we say. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to Pastor Ryan Couch of Calvary Chapel, Crook County. For more information, you can write to us at P.O. Box 378, Prineville, Oregon, 97754. Thanks for listening, and God bless.